0: Open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. Four simple chapters tucked away in your Old Testament that most people have some idea about, but few people really take the time to study it. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at this book, a chapter at a time. And I really debated on whether to... um, Begin by reading the whole thing or by just going through it verse by verse. And so I decided to do both. So I just want you to feel the whole thing. Just follow along. And and it's okay for this part of our our time of study if you don't even read, if you just listen. Listen. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the other was Ruth. And they lived there for about 10 years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law were with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her, her mother's house May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? I Have I... Yes, sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands. Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I said I have hope, if, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you wait, therefore, until they were grown? Would you, therefore, refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go... I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. They both went until they came to Bethlehem and when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Everybody loves a good love story. Just listen to the radio. Most of the music on the radio is about love. Someone has estimated that 90% of all the songs ever written in the history of the world has had something to do with love and romance. Survey the best literature in the world. It's about love. Watch the television shows and movies. They're love stories that are typically wrapped in other narratives. I hope it doesn't surprise you to find out that the Bible is full of love stories. Adam and Eve. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Solomon and the Shulamite woman, a whole book devoted to their romance, Esther and Ahasuerus. But I think there's one love story that excels them all, and that's the book and the story of Ruth. In its context, this book shines. The first verse is very careful to let us know that this little narrative, this little story happened during the darkest time in Israel's history. It was the time of the judges. There was no king yet. There were governors who ruled and very few of them had any righteous governance at all. Let me remind you of the last verse of the book of Judges. You can turn back one page and see it if you want. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we studied last week in an overview of Judges, that's the law of moral intuition. It's this idea that I can figure out right and wrong, good and bad, best and good, with my own intuitive sense while the majority were quick to live, as this text tells us, everyone did that which was right in his own eyes, there were some exceptions. And we find some of those exceptional people in the time of the rule of the judges here in the book of Ruth. Integrity matters. And doing what is right by the law of God matters. In fact, Those who do right by the law of God are put up as those to know and understand and follow in the Scriptures. And the book of Ruth shows us some of these men and women of integrity, of true godliness, of virtue that's worth imitating and emulating. And the book of Ruth plays out on a massive stage But it's not a stage like this where everyone's looking and focusing on a stage. It's not like like Carnegie Hall or some concert venue. The stage in the book of Ruth are are backyards. Unless we had known about this from the Holy Spirit's canonizing this book and placing it in in an incredibly special place in the providence of God, in the line of the Messiah, Jesus himself, We would have never known anything like this happen. The book of Ruth is really easy to identify with. It's very easy to find resonance with your own heart, with your own experience. It's down to earth. It's profoundly human. It's something in which we can see ourselves in different characters, in different seasons of our lives. We see a woman named Naomi who gets hammered by life. She experiences famine, grief, exile, loneliness, and heartache all in just a few years' time. We meet a woman named Ruth who demonstrates commitment, loyalty, courage, cleverness. We'll meet a man named Boaz, a gracious tower of gentle masculinity and manliness, a man of deep and abiding generosity. Now, at first glance, these characters... They don't look very important. Uh, They're just dealing with ordinary life, ordinary issues. Eating and sleeping is what this book finds itself talking about. But these are actually extraordinary people who act in extraordinary ways in ordinary circumstances. God's name, his personal name, Yahweh, that ineffable unspeakable tetragrammaton those four letters yod Hei, waw he, in the hebrew god is i am who i am that's the name he gave moses that name is mentioned directly 13 times in this four chapter book ultimately the book of ruth is about it's about god it's about yahweh the god of israel It's about how God intersects in human lives in curious and in unexpected ways. And when you read the book of Ruth, and I want to encourage you to read it cover to cover. It'll just take you a few minutes. Read all four uh, chapters this week with your family. There's a strange absence of things we see other places in the Bible. Especially in the Old Testament, there's no audible vision, no voices, no angels, no burning bushes, no parted seas, no trembling mountains, no obvious divine miracles. But God makes himself known in the simple, ordinary workings of tragedy, loyalty, and human relationships. Despite God's seeming absence, he's central and the central character in the story. I like how Robert Hubbard puts it. Ruth portrays God as involved in life's ordinary affairs. Indeed, they are exactly the arena in which he chooses to operate. That's super encouraging to me because I feel like I have a pretty ordinary life sometimes. That's the arena in which he chooses to operate. Hubbard goes on. It describes how God works through, not despite, the everyday faithfulness of his people, end quote. That's a great insight. So let's back up. What is this little four-chapter book about that follows Judges that happened in the midst of the book of Judges? the, The reign of these men and women who governed Israel. Well, there are two dimensions at work in Ruth, and you got to keep both of these in mind in each chapter that we'll be looking at. First of all, there's what God is doing in the lives of these simple people in Moab and in Judah. It's storytelling at its finest. It's God dealing with the horizontal relationships that exist in Moab, in Judah, in Bethlehem, and, and, and the relationships that develop because of tragedy and how they responded to tragedy. That's on the horizontal level, but there's the vertical level too, and that's what God is doing to preserve and prepare the line of David, which would be the line of Jesus. We'll have much more to say about that in chapter 4, but this is God. Playing divine chess, putting every piece exactly where he wants it to be to preserve and to promote, to bring about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, it seems that Ruth was written in a time in which the claim of David to the throne was being discussed or outright condemned or rejected. Now, I share the opinion of many other scholars who believe that Samuel probably wrote the book of Ruth. David's great grandmother was a Moabite named Ruth. So when David came to the throne, not being Saul's son, not being in that kingly succession, there were questions about why should David be in the throne? Why should he have the the kingship of Israel? Did you know about his great-grandmother? She's a Gentile from Moab. And by the way, Moab, Moab was the son of Lot. That's the time and the day and the origin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was an awful place with a terrible reputation. If they could tie David to Moab, they would have a reason to bring him down. So I think when this is likely written is during the time of David. Samuel says, Let me tell you, he faces it head on. Not only was David the great grandson of a Moabitess, he was for God's glory and God's purposes. Why not address it head on? I love that Samuel gets ahead of the story. Now enough for the background for now. Let's let's kind of work through it. More of the background will spill out as we get into the narrative. I want to with the narrator Samuel, I think Let us follow the mind of the Holy Spirit who inspired this book. And in the end, I want to draw some conclusions. So we're just going to work through this verse by verse and then come back to the end and say, so what? Now, we can look at Ruth like a good drama or or a good play that has multiple scenes or multiple acts or multiple parts. They're evenly divided into these four chapters. And by studying through this book over the next few weeks, it's going to be much like watching a mini-series on TV There's a cliffhanger at the end of the first three chapters and it resolves itself in chapter four. So if we get to the end today and you go, wait a minute, what happens next? You can read it if you want to. not going to ask you to wait. Just read on ahead. But we won't find ultimate resolution until the end of the book. I'm going to give you a title uh, for each of these chapters. Today it's Tragedy and Loyalty. Chapter two will be Boy meets girl. Chapter 3 will be romance in reverse. And chapter 4, in three weeks from now, will be happily ever after. Tragedy and loyalty, boy meets girl, romance in reverse, and happily ever after. We're going to look this morning at tragedy and loyalty and just work through chapter 1 together. Tragedy and loyalty. Verse 1. Now it came about we said this last week in the days when the judges governed that was a dark horrific time Ruth is the diamond in the dung hill in the time of judges that there was a famine in the land i think those are connected famine was usually associated with the judgment of God and it's interesting that there was a famine in the land of Judah 50 miles away from there in the land of Moab there was plenty of food God specifically is targeting his people because every man was doing that which was right, where? In his own mind, right, in his own eyes. It happened during this time that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn. That's an important word. Sojourn means temporarily stay. Now keep that in your mind for the next few seconds. Sojourn means to stay for a short amount of time. Temporarily stay, sojourn. Just pass through is another way we could say that. Who went to sojourn to pass through in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. The name of the the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The name of his two sons, uh, Malon and Kilion, were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah Now they entered the land of Moab to sojourn, and what's the next phrase say? And remained there. This gives us the idea that there was a famine and they were gonna travel down, spend a little time and make some money, gather some food and come back home. Elimelech lived with his wife Naomi and their two sons who were of very close to marrying age. And by the way, marrying age in the ancient Near East was somewhere after puberty and before 15 or 16. Just remember that. He lived with Naomi. They're two sons a few miles south of Jerusalem, five miles exactly south of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Now it would have been very obvious to the original readers who knew Hebrew that Bethlehem means house of, does anyone know? Bread, good. House of bread. Isn't it interesting that the bread basket of Israel, the house of bread, had no food? Speaking of the judgment of God against those who were doing what was right in their own eyes, God sends a famine during the time of Judges to discipline and to awaken his people. It was as bad as it could get. Businesses were ceasing, they were going out of business. People were starving, literally, children were dying. So to find a relief from the famine, this family migrates to Moab. Now, if you want to know where Moab is, if you're looking at at a map of Israel, it's straight to the east over the mountains down by the Dead Sea and on the other side. It's southeast of the Dead Sea. About 50 miles away. Now, if you went up on a ridge... In Bethlehem, on a clear day, you could see straight down to the Dead Sea, across and into Moab. They were enjoying an abundance of food. From that top mountain, they could probably see green fields, lush vegetation. While they were starving, a couple of days walk from there. It's not hard to imagine that they were looking literally where the grass was, Greener. They also probably wanted political relief. Can you imagine trying to operate under wicked people with wicked neighbors? Everyone who had their own sense of morality and did what was right in their own eyes. They had their own internal Bible they were listening to. All looks pretty well until we start verse 3. Now, by the way, there's a lot of debate Were were they out of the will of God by going to, to sojourn in Moab? Were they disobeying God, disobeying God from not staying in Bethlehem? The text doesn't tell us. It just says they were hungry and they went down to get food in Moab to stay there for a while and they stayed longer. Then verse three, it's so understated. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. And she's left with two young sons Elimelech would never see his sons (coughs) weddings we don't know what happened to him I I find my curiosity in so much of Ruth and a lot of the Bible but I want to know things that the text doesn't tell us but let's always remember when you want to know things that the text doesn't tell us that in the framework of God's message they don't matter now though we don't know she loved her husband deeply. She, the way she grieves later in the chapter lets us know. And she dies, and she has at least the companionship of her two sons. Then there's verse four. There is a world of information in verse four. They, the two sons, took for themselves. Moabite women as wives. This was a big deal. Why? Because of who the Moabites were. Remember, if you can trace them back, the son of Lot was Moab and that's the time where they chose the Sodom and it was associated with Sodom and Gomorrah. It was definitely it was uh, it was uh, right in the area where the Sodom and Gomorrah would have been. It was a wretched place of horrific reputation. But not only that, the Moabites gave the Israelites an incredibly difficult time. Read Deuteronomy 1 through 5. They, when they were trying to cross the land of Canaan, they lied to them. They, they cheated them. They, they took advantage of them. They warred against them. They tried to kill them before they went over to occupy the land of Canaan. They were wicked, wicked people. So at the end, toward the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says in Deuteronomy 23 verse 3, No Ammonite or Moabite shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. They should be condemned for even worshiping the God who they have slandered. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet, with, meet you with food and water on the way which when you came out of Egypt. They were brutal to them. They let, let them hunger and, and thirst right in their backyards. In fact, they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor and from Pathor the, of Mesopotamia to curse you. And yet, these two young men took Moabite wives. Doesn't sound like much of a short sojourn, does it? This was a mixed marriage. Religiously, racially, culturally, ethnically, it could not have been more different. It would have turned heads in Moab for these guys to walk around and say, it has got a Jewish wife. And were they to ever migrate back to Judah in Bethlehem, well, there's those girls with the Moabite husbands. We meet these ladies in the middle of verse four. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, Ruth. And they lived there, how long? A decade, about 10 years. Now we find out later why they stayed 10 years? Because the text indicates that's how long the famine lasted. So don't be too hard on them. Now, knowing that most marriages happen when the younger, during the younger teen years, these, this couple probably lived, the, the, this, the, these new couples, this, these boys, these young men and their wives, probably lived in Moab at least half their lives or more. There they are in Moab. For a decade after Elimelech's death, Naomi lived in Moab with her sons and their wives. Little footnote, this is important. This will play a lot into chapter four. Under rabbinic law, ten years of childlessness in marriage allowed a husband to divorce his wife. Ten years. Of marriage, no children. Put that in the back of your mind for the future. A woman who had been barren during a 10-year marriage, by the way, would not have a very good prospect for marriage if something happened to her, remarriage, if something happened to her husband. Verse five, (laughs) then both... Malon and Kilion also died. And the focus of of the narrator comes back to Naomi. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Her boys died. Her sons died. By the fifth verse, the three main men in Naomi's life, the three men rather in Naomi's life died. And she was left with her two sons' widows, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi has attended three funerals in her time in Moab. No visible means of supporting herself in this foreign land. I almost feel like there should be almost a a say-la after verse 5. where That just means stop and reflect. Just take a deep breath. This is a bad time in a bad time. We're uninformed how these young men died, but their deaths were untimely as young men, no, no doubt. People died from infection, from common cuts, influenza, accidents, uh, sepsis, complications from broken bones, from fights, from wars, and from the ever present threat of robbers. We don't know what happened to them if they died together or if they died separately, but they both die. I think it's interesting, by the way, in the first five verses of this chapter, It's the only part of the book in which God's name is not found. There's no evidence that Elimelech sought direction from God for this move, but there's no evidence that he was condemned for it either. Then Naomi hears that God had again provided food in Bethlehem. This is a decade. There's a lot of time in these first five verses. So, verse 6, She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab, when she was there, that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. It's the first reference to God in the book. The Lord had visited, Yahweh had visited his people, giving them food, which says that God was the one who's in charge of both the famine and now the harvest. Just as Naomi would hear assign the blessing of God with the food of Israel, we can assume that she also saw his hand in the famine as well. So, verse seven, she departs from the place where she was, her and her two daughters in law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Remember, this is a 50 mile journey, just a few days' walk. If you've been to Israel, it's completely uphill. Plenty of time to talk and plan and reflect and to figure out what's gonna happen next. So, she's gonna go back, and here's these two despised Moabite women who were going to go with her. Naomi has a clue. She knows what it's going to be like back there, both on the cultural acceptance and their possibility of living the rest of their lives as single women. So she says, verse a, go return each of you to her mother's house and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, their husbands and no doubt father-in-law and with me. These were good women. They have been gracious, kind daughters in law. Verse 9, may the Lord grant you that you may find rest. Menuhat in the Hebrew, it means a place to settle on, a home. Find you a new home. Find a new home, rest, each in the house of her. She was hoping that they would find husbands and figuring that they would have a better chance of finding a husband in Moab than bringing barren foreigners up to Israel to find a woman, uh, find a man. That's that's important. How are they gonna find a husband in Israel? Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. This is a heart-wrenching goodbye scene. Naomi obviously knew they were still of marriageable age. Finding a husband in Bethlehem would be near impossible. So she says, go back and find a husband here. She says, go back. They're probably on their way. Maybe not even circled the Dead Sea yet to begin to climb up toward Jerusalem. These were foreign women who were barren. And then there's an unimaginable weeping scene beginning in verse 10. They said to her, no. We will surely return with you to your people. I want to go with you, Naomi. But she says in verse 11, return my daughters. Why? Why should you go with me? And then she sets up these rhetorical questions. Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? I don't have any more kids. What she's saying there is, if it were up to me, I know you and your life and your character, I would let you marry my sons, but I don't have any more Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. Now we see something that's gonna play out in the previous, in the, in the subsequent chapters. She's too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, maybe to get a husband, if I should even dare have a husband tonight and also bear sons, let's say I have a son, would you therefore wait until they're grown? You gonna wait 15, 20 years to get married? No, my daughters, for it's harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord, look at this attribution of God's sovereignty, has gone forth against me. And they all lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, saying goodbye. But Ruth clung to her, as we'll find out, saying, I'm not going anywhere but where you go. Naomi interprets her tragic consequences of moving to Moab, the tragic things that happened there, as from the hand of God. Don't miss that. Naomi's words indicate how difficult it would be for her to take these girls to find a willing husband in Bethlehem. She couldn't have any more sons. Verse 15, Then she said to Ruth, who's clinging on to her, who says, I'm not going anywhere. Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. You go with her, return after her, after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you. Please do not urge me to turn back from following you. For where you go, Naomi, I will go. Where you live, Naomi, I will live there. Your people, the Jews, will be my people. Have you ever seen an Old Testament conversion? Here it is. And your God will be my God. Now, verse 16, tragically, is one of the most widely misinterpreted and grossly applied verses in the whole Bible. I've heard it used at weddings. This is not between a man and a woman. It's between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. I've, I've seen it worn as jewelry between two friends. This is not two friends. This is relatives. And I've heard even a girl who memorized it. <laughs> she memorized this as a response to when her boyfriend was going to propose to her. She wanted to say this back to him. I guess that's okay. Okay. It's just not what it means. It's not referring to romantic love, but family loyalty. And the last phrase in verse six, the God of Israel becomes Ruth's God. She becomes a Jewish proselyte, a convert. Not only will Israel, the God of Israel rather, become Ruth's God, he will be the one who she worships. That Moses said, this is a bad idea. Just we have to just take an aside. Is is there is there anyone or any people or that you just think they're beyond conversion? A country or a group of people America has been at war with? A race that you have trouble with? Is there anyone who you begin to see, you know what? God can save anybody, but. I'd be okay if he didn't save them. This was radical conversion and evangelism. It points to the unmistakable fact, by the way, that either Elimelech, Naomi, Or Malon, as well. Verse chapter four, verse ten tells us that Malon was the uh, was the one of the brothers who, um, one of the um, men who uh, was her the one who was her husband, I should say, not Kilion. They obviously had told them about Yahweh, and Ruth believed. It's amazing. She goes on in verse seventeen, "Where you die, I'm going to get put my grave there. I'll die there. That's where I'll be buried." Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. May I be cursed and die if I don't follow you. Verse 18 is really sweet. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went, verse 19, until they came to Bethlehem. Now the narrator cleverly leaves out answers that I would love to know. I have questions for Where did they stay when they got to Bethlehem? Relatives, friends? Did Elimelech have an old house? Did they have to go in and push the cobwebs away? Where where did they come back to? We don't know everything that happened in Bethlehem, but, but we'll find out that coming home with her, Naomi caused quite a stir in this little village outside of Jerusalem. Look at verse 19. When they came to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred in an uproar, literally gossiping all about the business of them. And the women said... Is this Naomi? Now, apparently, they didn't say this just about her, but they said this to her. Is that you, Naomi? Because she says to them in verse 20, do not call me Naomi. Her her, her name Naomi means lovely, pleasant, content. That's her name. That's what it means. She said, call me Mara or bitter. That's what that means. For the Almighty, El Shaddai, the God of the patriarchs, has dealt very bitterly with me. She points to the sovereignty of God not to blame him, but to show that she indeed, as we'll see in the rest of the book, she trusts an unseen providence. I went out full. Literally, her life lacked nothing. She left rich and returned poor. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back destitute, empty. She's obviously talking about her husband and two sons because of their family did not go out full of blessings. They went out hungry. She went out full of relationships and came back empty of those that she left with. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified, witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Listen, she's not blaming God. She's rather acknowledging God's sovereign providence in her difficulties. She left with nothing, came back with, she left with everything that was important to her, came back with nothing, but she left nothing to chance. She didn't blame any chance or problem. She looked to God as the The divine author of her circumstances. Now, there's an amazing but difficult theology here. In Naomi's theology, there was no other sovereign force in the universe except God. She didn't dismiss God from her difficulty, she embraced God in her difficulty. Do you have a theology for suffering? Do you have a theology for difficulty? We quote him all the time. Don Carson says, all you have to do as a Christian is live long enough and you will encounter suffering. Do you have a theology that's ready for that? Do you have a way to interpret that? Do you have a way to respond to God in that? Do you know where God is in difficulty? I'm not sure anything much about Elimelech, but their relationship had yielded the fruit where she knew how to interpret life. I think this is one of the macro themes of Scripture. Preparing our heart, and as a pastor and an elder, as a shepherd, preparing your hearts for shepherding, hurting hearts through difficult times, difficult circumstances. I think it's one of the subtle reasons we have the book of Ruth. It stands shoulder to shoulder shoulder with Job and Esther, where everything looks good, but God is working behind the scenes. So, verse 22, Naomi returned, and with her, this is the first time she's called a Moabitess. And I think if it's Samuel who writes this, he does this on purpose to get ahead of the accusation that David's great-grandmother was a Gentile, was from Moab. With Naomi returned to Judah in Bethlehem, the Moabitess. Her daughter-in-law, her family, who returned from the land of Moab, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, late April or early May. There she is, Bethlehem, with this woman from a despised people, a begrudged people, who Moses said, don't even let them assemble with you. Now, that's obviously unless they embrace Yahweh your God, which Ruth had done. There's tragedy, there's loyalty here. Naomi loses her husband and three sons. She's abandoned by one of her daughters-in-law. She, though never loses sight of God, he doesn't forsake her or leave her and she recognizes that. And Ruth, a Moabitess, remains loyal to Naomi. She embraces the God of Israel. She's converted and the final scene in this chapter tells us that there is indeed food again in the house of bread in Bethlehem. And this will be the circumstance, namely the harvest of barley at the barley harvest, that God is going to do the most incredible can I say this? the strangest thing in the next two chapters? that no one would have imagined and no one would have made up. This is stuff you don't make up, by the way. You read Ruth and you go, this didn't come from some creative mind. God providentially ordained this book to happen. So what do we do with this? By by the way, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest is where we're going to start next week. That's the cliffhanger. Can I just give you a... Five takeaways that God impressed on my own heart in reading this this passage. First of all, I'm, I'm not being trite when I say this. Number one, don't take for granted the simple blessing of having food to eat. Don't take for granted the simple blessing of not being in a famine, of having food to eat. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Have any of you ever really prayed that because unless the Lord intervened, you wouldn't eat that day? I doubt it. We're so blessed. You don't even know, not only do you know where the next meal is coming from, you probably have enough in your cabinets and refrigerator to last you a significant amount of time if if you had to. Don't take it for granted. We are swimming in the flood of God's blessing by knowing where our next meal is coming from. Think about that today when you ask the blessing, whatever we say, you say the blessing, you express thanks at lunch. Maybe you want to tell God, thank you that you gave us food that you likely didn't even ask him for. Amazing. Don't take it for granted. That was a significant issue in this narrative. Number two, be careful taking shortcuts around difficult circumstances. Be careful taking or attempting shortcuts around difficult circumstances. They thought they were going to go sojourn in Moab. Everything was going to be great. They would stay there, get some food. The family would go away, they would return home. Three of the four people who went to Moab were buried in Moab. And it's easy to remember that God can be trusted in every circumstance no matter where we are. Shortcuts around difficult difficult circumstances never shortcut what God is doing in our lives. Each of these could be an entire sermon by themselves. Number three, Faithful evangelism follows faith in God. Faithful evangelism follows faith or faithfulness in God. This family had gone down to uh, uh, this land of, of godlessness, of many gods, Moab. And whatever they said, Ruth became attracted enough to their worship to say, Your God will will be my God. In an Old Testament sense, they were evangelistic. They won her to the loyalty that they had to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. Number four, we've said this in another way. God is at work in, in all caps I have it, God is at work in every circumstance, no matter how difficult he will never leave us or forsake us. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how bad the circumstances become, no matter how much suffering we experience physically, emotionally, God is still at work. You're you're gonna see in the coming three chapters things he was doing that This couple and their sons would have never imagined when they went down to Moab. Which leads to number five. God is always doing more than we see. He's always doing more than we see. In this chapter, he is preserving the line of Jesus Christ, the Savior who would die for the forgiveness of those who believe in him and Their sins and those who believed in him and understand the gospel. Rise from the grave. All of that is begun in the line of David here. He's doing more than they saw. Do you believe that God is doing far more than you see? God is doing tens of thousands of things with you sitting here right now and not sitting somewhere else And sitting by you, who you are, and not sitting by someone else, and driving where you're going to go, and not going to another place. He is doing tens of thousands of things. Do you just recognize it? Do you believe it? Naomi saw her bitter circumstances. As a direct expression of God's care and faithfulness to her. And by the end of the book, she and we will understand that in an amazing way.